0: Like how you decide which sperm to use, the cold, hard truth of fertility, your reality of dating as a single mother who doesn't have a co parent to rely on for occasional childcare,
1: and what it's actually like to parent as an SMC.
0: This is the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice podcast. This week, we have a very special guest for you, Elise Daniel. Elise is an embryologist from the Atlantic Reproductive Medical Specialist in North Carolina. She has degrees in genetics and biotechnology, and she's here with us today to demystify the process of embryo creation and fertility. We'd also like to mention that Elise is also very active on social media. You create these amazing videos. She she makes like behind the science of like baby making really approachable. And so Elise, thank you for being here. Can you share a little bit about yourself with the pod and then also, you know, share your social media so they know where to find you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to be chatting with all of you. It's been great getting to know know you two. So like, like, um, said, my name is Elise Daniel. I'm an embryologist. I've been an embryologist since I graduated, um, with my degree in genetics in 2018. So I'm still a little young. I'm still a little new to the field, but, um, I've really found my place in this field. And like she said, I'm an embryologist. So I am the person who is, Growing embryos. I do egg retrievals. We're inseminating eggs back in the lab. Uh, we're doing semen analyses, thawing samples for insemination, all of that sorts of things. Um, that is is what I do on a day to day basis. And I do have an Instagram as well as a TikTok. I post a little bit more on TikTok for the visuals, and my TikTok is just at Elise the Embryologist.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much again for being here. So. You told us a little bit about like what an embryologist does, but can you tell us what made you choose this as a profession?
2: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people think I went to a specific school to do this, and I didn't. Um, you only have to have a certain number of science credits, which you can get with a bachelor's in science, um, with any science degree. And then um, I worked my way into embryology just through training on the job, which is a great perk of this field. I always had some interest in reproductive medicine, reproductive health, as well as women's health. And with my background in genetics, a lot of what we are learning is developmental biology, cell biology, all of those sorts of things. And I always thought it was very interesting. So I really just I knew I didn't want to go to med school. I knew I didn't, I was too tired. I was burned out. Oh <laughs> so, no Yeah, it's school is hard. So any father who are in school, you got it. It's, 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 it's worth it in the long run. But I just kind of did a a quick Google search on like, what are, what can I do in reproductive health with this degree? And I found the whole world of the IVF lab and embryology. And I reached out to a bunch of clinics in the area just to get some shadowing to see if it was for me. And that's how I am here today. I, I stuck on with the only clinic that got back to me and at first, I really wasn't sure if this is something I wanted to do. Looking at semen every day, um, I was like, "Ah, oh, is this really for me?" Uh, but I'm glad I stuck it out because I really do enjoy it, um, even with all the semen that I look at on a regular
0: basis. Yeah, um, I just I love watching your videos, and I think that one of the things that is really hard about this is that it's such a it's such an emotional process for the person who's like going through it to try to create embryos. And it's nice and refreshing to kind of see you talk about this with like such joy and passion, because it almost like takes my blood pressure down, you know, like, <laughs> versus not versus like the topic in general.
2: Exactly. Thank it's you. a very stressful process. And um, I think it, there's so much mystery around the lab that I can really ease some people's mind or give people peace of mind if they can at least have a little information about what's going to happen. And I will say that it is such a pleasure to have
1: a black woman in the field. And if you're lucky enough to have a black embryologist come out and tell you, you know, kind of break it down in um, approachable details, easy to understand language that, you know, here's what here's what you should worry about. Here's what not to worry about so much. But let me explain to you what's going on here. So I I thank you. And I'm so glad that you ended up. choosing this, this field. And to be a cell biologist, I I was a biology major and, you know, hats off and kudos to you. Um, And I will say kind of just having a little bit of that background helped me in being able to decide what my next steps were going to be. And so to have a medical professional who can come and kind of like convey that information to laymen, I think is awesome. So thank you for coming and chatting with us.
2: Yeah. The diversity is so important because you know infertility affects everyone no matter your race your gender any of that and there definitely is a lack of diversity as you two know um, in in just the world in general and especially on my side as a clinician um, so to be able to spread awareness to hopefully other diverse future embryologists we'd love to have that diversity in the field
1: so let's jump into it let's so we it starts with the egg right and since, since we're on the egg side of the conversation um, can you tell us a little bit about the egg retrieval process so I know it's it's almost like behind the veil right Right? So you go in, you get sedated, you wake up, you got these eggs and the embryologist, you know, they're kind of coming in between the screens with the little scrubs on. You see their eyes, like kind of take us through like some of the things that we've heard are like you've done the retrieval, you get mature eggs, you get immature eggs, M1 eggs or M2 or 4 eggs. What does that mean at the outset?
2: So as an embryologist, we are not the ones actually performing the egg retrieval. The doctor's performing the egg retrieval, and we get the follicular fluid from the doctor in a little tube, and we are looking through that follicular f- fluid for those eggs. Um, so if you've gone through an egg retrieval, you feel gloated and oh, very terrible. kind of big... <laughs> Yeah, that's because your follicles in your ovary are very pumped up. We are trying to get as many eggs as we can, and so you feel kind of uncomfortable. Um, So once we get those eggs, um, we are sifting, like I said, we're sifting through those, those tubes to look for cumulus cells. The cumulus cells are what surround your egg to protect them naturally in the body. We can see those as embryologists and we hope that there's an egg in there. So we can see a tiny little egg with cumulus cells around them. And so we're pulling those out. If you were doing ICSI, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, that is where we inject that sperm directly into the egg we have to remove those cells um, because the sperm naturally produce um, enzymes that break those cells down. But since we're not doing it naturally, we have to help them. Um, And so when we remove those cells, we get three different types of eggs that we can see. An M2, which is a mature egg, those are the ones that we can inject. We get M1s, which are immature eggs. Sometimes they will pop a polar body, um, which makes them an M2 within the time of stripping and ICSI, but we cannot inject those, they will not fertilize. And then we get something called a GV, which is a germinal vesicle. And that is actually when you are born, you're born with all the eggs you will ever have, That is the state that your eggs are frozen in, if you will, paused in until they mature during your follicular phase of your cycle. So the reason we get those when we're doing retrievals is because your body isn't naturally releasing them. Your body doesn't naturally release immature eggs or GVs, but when we're going in there and physically removing them from the the follicles, we can get some of those immature types of eggs. So I have heard recently,
0: like lots of women will post on the site and they'll be like, I got 20 eggs or 30 or 40. And that seems like a huge number, like, especially 40. And do you notice that like with these larger volumes, there's less mature eggs or does it really not matter?
2: It really depends. So we can have patients with 10 eggs that have four immature eggs. And so we'll end up with six usable eggs, or we can have a patient with 40 eggs, who also only has four immature eggs. Um, it's more likely to have immature eggs, the higher number you get, but there's not really a great correlation with higher egg numbers means half of them are going to be immature or anything like that. Um, we When we, when you're going for your scans to measure the follicle size, that gives us a better indication on how many mature eggs we can expect because an, a smaller follicle is more likely to be an immature egg. So um, the doctor is trying to drain the biggest follicles because those are more likely to have mature eggs.
1: Thanks, mm-hmm. Okay, so so I have a question. Um, in our space, we have um, people who range in age from like mid twenties to mid forties. Is there a visual difference between a twenty-somethings egg and? a 40 something's egg under the microscope
2: not necessarily so egg quality issues we do see Higher instances of egg quality issues in the older that you get, but someone young can also have egg quality issues. So we can't visually see DNA damage, which is more common over the age of 35, but we can see things like vacuoles, like smooth endoplasmic reticulums, which really can happen in all age ranges. Um, and it's more of a quality versus like DNA issue. So uh, A structural
1: issue as as opposed to
2: Structural versus DNA integrity. And so we can't unfortunately see that DNA damage, which is why we often suggest, you know, genetic testing on those embryos from people who have um, older eggs. Um, because they're more likely to have that but we can't pick those out of the bunch because we can't see them but we can see other things that could give us an indication of an egg quality issue but those can happen um, really at any at any age but they are more likely to happen over the age when you think egg you don't want to think chicken egg you don't want to see an oval you don't want to see um any sort of oblong shape you want it to be pretty spherical um, in shape, so that symmetry is important. We don't want to see any oblong-shaped eggs or anything like that. They should look very circular. So,
1: at least in our space, there are two other types of conditions that come up a lot. We have the the people who have PCOS, and then we have people who have different forms of endometriosis. Visually, is there a difference between um, eggs from a person with PCOS aside from the number of eggs? And then also the same question for endometriosis, do you visually see a difference um, from a patient with endometriosis?
2: So visually, we don't see a difference. Um, like you were saying, Aisha, it's more number wise. So patient with PCOS, we may expect lower numbers. they are going to have a very, very high AMH, which can give this impression that they they have a great egg reserve. But after a certain point, we're like, oh, that, that, that's an indication of PCOS because um, those cysts are releasing hormones that, that boost that AMH. So it's not, it's like a, They're faking you out. (laughs) Um, But in terms of the look, they really look pretty much the same. Same with endometriosis. We may have lower egg numbers. We may have the same amount of egg numbers, but we can't visually see. Um, And that's the problem with a lot of this, is we can only do so much diagnostic testing because some of this stuff we can't see. We can't see DNA damage. Sometimes it's very hard to tell whether it's a sperm issue or an egg issue. So we're doing our best here, but some of this is still, still newer and there's not enough research for us to to get visuals on some of these things. So unfortunately, visually they look, they look great, but yeah. those deeper insides are things that we can't see.
0: A question that comes up in our area a lot. And this is like something I've seen on multiple forums is like, you'll see someone pop in and they'll be like, I'm 44. Like, I'd love to hear like, women who are over 40, who like have done IUI and it's worked on the first time. Right. So I'm wondering what advice would you give an older woman who's starting this journey, particularly someone over the age of 40 and how would it change from somebody who was like maybe in their 20s coming in?
2: Absolutely. So our general recommendation is if you are over the age of 35, you don't want to be trying more than six months to conceive if, if you've been trying for six months and you haven't conceived, you want to see a specialist. If you're under the age of 35 um, and you haven't conceived in a year, Then you want to see a specialist. And those things, those recommendations change whether you have PCOS or endometriosis. So Mm -hmm. if you're 27, but you have known PCOS and endometriosis or a combination of of other things, six months. You don't want to wait too long Mm -hmm. uh, because the longer you wait, the the lower your chances are, um, especially when you're getting over the age of 40. So my biggest advice is don't wait don't wait too long. Um, I will say uh, for the general population of people who don't have fertility issues, your chances of getting pregnant every month is only about 30%. So when you're over the age of 40, that gets even lower and even lower. So if you're waiting too long, we don't want to wait to the point where your options are very limited. Um, The earlier you get in, the better your success rates are going to be.
0: And is that same for like IUI versus IVF? Like if someone's you know, I know there's lots of folks that are just like wanting to keep trying IUI. So like after the age of 40, would it be the recommendation that you don't try more than six before you kind of move on?
2: Yeah, so it's actually a little lower than that. Typically, when we have one, you can learn a lot from a diagnostic workup. So before a patients even doing TDIs or IUIs, we're looking at a diagnostic we're doing diagnostic tests. We're doing HSG, which tells us if your fallopian tubes are open, we're looking at AMH, which tells us ovarian reserve. We're looking at antrophallical count, which can also give us an idea of ovarian reserve. So if those things are, are lower, we may say, let's go straight to IVF. You know, your AMH is less than one. You've got one antropholic, you know, you, you may be missing a tube or have a blockage in a tube. IV, IUI may not be an option for patients over 40. Um, IVF may be their only option. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if, if IUI or TDI, it, we do feel like is an option for someone over 40, we typically do three. Mm-hmm. After three failed IUIs, it doesn't mean you can't do any more IUIs, but we're going to have a conversation um, and talk about those previous cycles, if there's things we can improve on, maybe different protocols. Um, And we may talk about increasing our treatment to InvoCell or IVF. Um, You know, we're at least having that conversation after three failed. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: That makes sense. So, all right. So let's shift gears just a little bit to talking about now the other component, which is the sperm component of um, this whole trying to get pregnant thing. Um, so we—it's we not a whole- me. It's you. <laughs> <laughs> It's not me, it's not you, right? That's the body's conversation that it's having. It's not me, it's you, right? And so we have women um, that come from a broad range of trying to conceive and thinking to parenting. And so now we're getting an influx of of women who are saying, I'm looking to get started, help me figure out how to choose sperm. And so questions that we get tend to be around um, African-American donors, um, CMV. And most recently we had a question about blood type. So can we um, start first um, kind of talking about sperm in general? Like, is a, is a semen analysis really important?
2: hundred percent. When you go into, if you are a partnered person, um, when you come into the clinic, that's going to be one of the first tests they, they ask you to do is a semen analysis, because it's 50% of the piece here. Um, sperm is so, so important. When you break down the types of infertility, male factor infertility is about 30% of cases is the female or egg, um, 30% is the sperm provider, 30% is both, and 10% is unexplained. So you combine those two, 60%, you know, is, is sperm. You know, issues or in combination with, with sperm and eggs. So sperm is very yeah. important. So that's 100% something I would really, really advise someone to do if they're planning on using a known donor. Um, make sure they're getting a semen analysis. Make sure they're getting some just basic blood work done, infectious disease testing. Um, Contracts are very important for those that are using known donors, Um, but that's very important. And they're relatively cheap compared to other diagnostic tests. You're looking between free, if if it's covered by your insurance, to a couple hundred dollars. Two to three hundred dollars is worth it to at least know they have sperm. Um, You don't have to do some of the advanced sperm testing, but you want to know they have sperm.
0: Well, and if dude isn't willing to do it, like he may just not be the one, right? Exactly. Like especially if you're, you know, if you're older and you're trying with a known donor and you like get, you know, you're you're set on this one person, you know, and it keeps on not working and not working, you know, you you want to make sure that you're not wasting additional time with somebody who, you know, whose whose boys can't swim. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so now the second question we get Um, Yeah, team elites. Anyway, the second question we get is about um, CMV. What is the impact of of CMV on the whole IUI, IVF process?
2: Yeah, so CFD is definitely important for people who are planning IUIs or home inseminations, that sort of thing. It's not as important for IVF with ICSI because we're washing the sperm and the chances of there still being virus on one individual sperm that we're injecting to the egg is very low um, because it's something that's usually found in the ejaculate, not necessarily in this the physical sperm cell. So with anything, HIV, other sexually transmitted diseases in the ejaculate, not the actual sperm cell. Um, but it's very important to look at CMV status when you are choosing a donor, known or, or anonymous or otherwise. You don't want to, if you are CMV positive, you can choose positive or negative. If you're CMV negative, you only want to choose a donor that's CMV negative, because if you choose a donor that's CMV positive, there's a risk that you could have CMB, um from that, from that, um, that donor. And it's very similar with, obviously, they're all tested for infectious disease, but blood typing is also another thing to consider. Now, I know there are some people who aren't seeing a fertility specialist before they can see because you can buy donor sperm without seeing a doctor, but you want to make sure you've talked with the cryobank. They can advise you on these things. If you're concerned about your, your blood type or any of those sorts of things, that's what they're there for. Message them in the chat send them an email, give them a call. Um, You do need to know your own blood type, but they can advise you on what blood types are okay, which ones aren't. It's not necessarily as big of a concern trying to conceive. It can have some some, um, negative impacts on trying to conceive, but our biggest concern is in pregnancy um, and during delivery when there's those um, blood typing conflicts. Right.
1: Yeah. I, I had a blood type conflict with my second pregnancy due to something that happened with my first pregnancy. Um, and so, which caused me to have a series of miscarriages, but also to have to switch donors at the very end of, you know, my trying. Um, and I had to switch to the donor who had the same blood type as me just to kind of, you know, rule out everything and avoid any catastrophic, um, outcomes. So, so Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, definitely something to consider and to talk to the sperm bank about, or if you're using a known donor, at least go for a consult just to make sure you're covered. You know, a lot of times you don't want to spend too much time, you know, the more times you try to conceive, the more money it is. Um, So if you can kind of, and the more heartbreak potentially, so you, if yeah. you can avoid that by at least getting, you know, some peace of mind in terms of CMV status or blood typing, it's worth it. It's worth the heartbreak. It's, you know, in the long run, it'll save you some money.
0: So I know we talked about eggs earlier, but I wanted to shift gears a little bit to talk about embryos and like embryo grading. Cause I know a lot of times people will have questions and I, and I know we kind of talked about a little bit earlier about like, can you use this egg? Right. And I think the same questions occur for embryos. Like, how do you grade them? And, you know, like, can you, can you talk us through like what these grades mean.
2: Yes, absolutely. That is probably my number one most asked question among all the platforms that I'm on is embryo grading because it's important to an extent. And most clinics use a very standard structured grading system. And if what I'm describing in the next couple of minutes isn't what seems familiar to you. Your clinic may have their own specific grading system. Sometimes they do that. Just ask. Most of the time they're often willing to explain it to you. So there are three things that we're looking for um, when we're grading an embryo. The first is expansion. That is graded on a scale of one through six. And that's the very first thing in the grade. So you'll see a four, a three, a six, one, all of those sorts of things. The next thing is the ICM. It's literally the letter I, the letter C, the letter M. That stands for inner cell mass. And that is what becomes the future baby. That's very important. We want it to look good. And that is a letter. That's a letter A through D. The last thing in the grade is the trophectoderm. And those are the cells outside the ICM. That is what becomes the placenta. And that is also graded A through D. So you may see something like a 3AB, a 4BA, a 6BB. Those are, that's just general, some general grades to throw out there. So what you've seen, the expansion is really, we're looking at how How expanded is the inner blastocyst on the zona, Um, which we kind of mentioned earlier with the egg. The zona is the outer shell of the embryo or the egg. As it grows, that shell grows with the embryo. So the thinner that zona, the higher the grade. So an embryo has to hatch to implant. Now, just because your embryo is not hatching doesn't mean that it's not good. Sometimes they hatch naturally. Mm -hmm. before an FET, we manually hatch them with the laser. So we know part of the zona is gone. It may not fully come out of the zona when we see it before transfer, Uh but it will come out in the first 24 to 48 hours after your transfer. So um, they do have to hatch for you for them to implant for you to get pregnant, but Mm -hmm. do not worry if it's not happening at your time of transfer, it will happen. You guys just force it to happen. So yeah, we, we help it. I wouldn't say we force it because we can't make it come out of the zona like this. It okay. does that on its own. But what we do um, during the freezing and thawing process of freezing and thawing embryos, that mm-hmm. zona can get a little hardened because of the, the cryomedia, because of the liquid nitrogen. So mm-hmm. it has a harder time hatching on its own. So what we do is slice a piece of the zona off which does not harm the embryo the zona is going to be gone eventually anyway right you know we want it to come off. so we're ha- we're helping it by by slicing some of that zona off right to the embryo a little bit easier of a time to get out okay so you're creating
1: a door, yes, the
2: door. door just in case you're in the dark
1: here's a door um okay so when i was going through my ivf um process um we went through I guess the gold standard is to get a five-day embryo. But now we're moving toward five-day, we have six days. And then for me, I actually had a couple of seven-day embryos. So can you talk us through, because I know some people when they get to seven, you know, they're still quite nervous if that one is even going to, to do anything. So can you take us through kind of, you know, the differences between
2: the day embryo? Absolutely. So our goal is to have embryos fully mature on day five. That is what you typically see naturally in the body is day five is when the embryo should be fully mature. But that doesn't always happen. and It doesn't always happen naturally. That's what the research shows. But there are plenty of viable embryos that are on day six or day seven. Some of them take a little bit longer to fully mature to a point where we feel like they are high enough quality for us to transfer, to freeze, to biopsy. Um, Now, day six and day seven embryos have slightly lower pregnancy rates. And I'm talking like percent, like few percentage. It's not like day five is 90% and day six is 40%. So do all labs
0: typically wait that long or is it dependent
2: cause I have always
0: heard like three and five. I've never heard like waiting to seven. So this is like new for me.
2: Yeah. So it really depends on the clinic at our clinic. We don't do day three checks at all. We don't do day three, anything. We're not transferring on day three. We're not freezing on day three oh, Okay. Uh, because day three embryos actually have a lower chance of pregnancy than day five, because they're not as mature. You lose a lot of not all the embryos you have on day three will make it to do it to a day five blastocyst. So that's why we wait because they have higher pregnancy rates. Um, some clinics will only do day five. It is what it is. If you don't have anything on day five, that's it. I would say that's a very few and far between. Most clinics are are culturing out to day six, potentially day seven. We will will culture all the way out to day seven, but usually by day six, we can tell which ones um, have done all they're going to do and which ones have some potential for another day. So when you get a report on day five, that might not necessarily be the end all be all. As embryologists, we can see... Embryos that have potential, if you will, um, yeah. ones that we think will look better the next day. Now, we don't always know. They can change a lot in 12 hours, but we can say these two look early. We call them early blasts. They're, they're, their zonas are so very thick. They may be considered a one on expansion. Um, But they're organizing, they're starting to develop, and we're going to check them again the next day.
0: So what does it mean when they say an embryo is a
2: mosaic? Yeah. Um, So mosaicism is becoming a lot more known because the genetic testing for PGTA has gotten better. So a mosaic embryo, um, when we send out biopsy samples, we are sending out a few cells, six to eight, of the trophectoderm, which is what becomes the placenta. We send those off to genetic... Uh, testing company, they look at the DNA. And for a mosaic embryo, some of those cells have normal DNA and some of those cells have abnormal DNA. So it's not like all of them are normal or all of them are abnormal. There's some in between. Some of them are normal and some of them weren't. Um, And that's what we call a mosaic. And there can be high levels of mosaicism and low levels of mosaicism. Um, So if a lot of the cells are, are abnormal, and there's just a few that are normal. That's a higher level. If there's only one or two cells that had abnormal DNA, that'd be considered a low level mosaic. Um, and those are transferable. Oftentimes, those are the ones we transfer last, or if that's a, uh, a patient's only embryo, will transfer mosaic. But we do like our patients to have genetic counseling on that because we can tell, the genetic testing company tells us what genetic abnormalities those abnormal cells had. So the normal ones were normal, but the abnormal ones may have, may have had deletions here or deletions there or additions here or whatever. And the genetic counselor can, can counsel a patient on what that could mean for a future child, but there are normal um, genetically normal children that are born from mosaic embryos.
1: So, Elise, can we talk a little bit about the um, the names for the testing? Because when I was trying, we had PGS, and I think you mentioned um, something like PG, PG, PGTM, or what have you. So, what
2: are what do the different terms mean, or are they the same? Yeah. So, PGS and PGD are the um, older terms, if you will, for those testing. Um, we currently use the terms PGTA and PGTM. So that stands for pre-genetic testing for aneuploidy and pre-genetic testing for monogenetic disorders. Uh, and they're essentially very similar. PGS and PGD are, are the same thing as PGTA and PGTM. It's just a new term, <laughs> a more um, scientifically accurate term, if you will. Um, so PGTA, is genetic testing for aneuploidy things like Down syndrome, things like trisomy 18, trisomy 13, things that happen during the development of the embryo, not necessarily things that are passed from mother or father to baby, um, not things that are inherited, if that makes sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. PGTM is testing for a monogenetic disorder, things that are inherited, cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, sickle cell, things that you carry genetically, um, you or your partner, whoever is the, the, the sperm component. So
0: can you tell, like I know we have we have lots of discussion about you know the fact that there aren't that many black donors and the pool gets markedly smaller if you have, you know, if you, if you filter on sickle cell, right? Like having the sickle cell gene. So let's say somebody finds, you know, a donor that they think is amazing, but they are a carrier for sickle cell. And this donor is also a carrier for sickle cell. If they were like really wanting to use that donor, is it possible to do the testing post to see whether or not the the embryo has both or it would it just show that it had like one?
2: Yeah. So we can actually, that would be PGTM. That would be for that specific genetic mutation. Now that does require markers because everyone, sickle cell isn't necessarily genetically the same in every person. So um, I'm thinking like Huntington's, you have all of these repeats of a specific genetic component. And -hmm. that's what causes Huntington's. Some people have more of those repeats. Some people have less, but they're all still Huntington's. Um, So you have to have specific markers made for you and whoever the sperm component is. And then we can send off our biopsy sample, those six to eight cells. And they can tell us whether that embryo one has sickle cell, because if you and the other person are both carriers, that embryo can either have sickle cell be a carrier for sickle cell or not have sickle cell at all. Um, And so we can do that testing on those embryos. So if you and the person or donor that you're planning on using the sperm provider are both carriers for the same genetic disorder, we can screen those embryos to make sure that they don't have that disorder or even are carriers of that disorder. That's great. Um,
1: Um, I I do have one last question that I hear come up with mosaic embryos. So there is always the concern, you know, trust with the the medical um, establishment. How, 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 what ways do um, embryologists or what steps do embryologists take to make sure that they're not discarding what could be a good embryo? So we get that question a lot. So I have a mosaic embryo, but, you know, but how do I know that they're just not throwing away good embryos? Um, you know, you 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 create these embryos, you send them off to a lab, and then they come back like only two were good. We discarded the rest, right? Because they were a mosaic or something. Mm-hmm. And some people are just like, those are my embryos still are my albeit mosaic embryos. How do I know that they're not just discarding good embryos? Is there something we can do a next step to say, okay, this embryo would not be conducive to life or whatever they call it, you know, would
0: not so, be Like, a Are baby. you taking pictures so that people can see and then decide? Um, or
2: just discarding? Yeah, so we discard abnormal embryos. Most clinics do. Most clinics will not transfer an abnormal embryo. Now, mosaics are different. Here at our clinic, we do not discard mosaic embryos. Patients have to sign a specific mosaic embryo disposition consent, Um, but abnormals, we will discard. Um, When they sign their PGTA biopsy consent, it gives us Um, permission to discard abnormal embryos because they are not conducive with a a living pregnancy Um, and they are counseled on that before they sign that consent. Um, We do have some patients who are very concerned about it and what we can do because they don't get discarded right away. It takes time for these things to happen. Um, So if a patient is very concerned before they go through their cycle, we'll flag them and say this patient is very concerned about their abnormal embryos um, or potential, because at that point they haven't had any, if they come back with abnormal embryos, we'd have them speak to a genetic counselor to understand why these aren't conducive with life or even pregnancy. Most, most abnormal embryos are not, you're not getting pregnant with them. Um, now if a patient really has concerns, you know, ethical or moral concerns with discarding any embryo, there are things we can do, um, to make them feel more comfortable or feel like they have more control over the process. Um, so make sure you ask your, if you're having those concerns, talk to your doctor about it. Um, so some things we can do is some patients really don't like the idea of discarding, discarding embryos at all, whether they're normal or abnormal. Um, they feel like they are life. And that is completely fine. We understand that ultimately they they will be discarded, but some patients have asked to take them home and bury them privately, have their own private moment with those embryos or those babies that could have been. Um, And we don't have a problem doing those or, or allowing patients to have special requests. We can often work with special requests. You just ask. Um, if you don't ask the answer is no um, oftentimes we can make things work for patients those do require separate consents and we want to make sure they've been counseled that these are ultimately going to die um, but if they want to have them die in their presence or in their own ceremony or privately that's we can make a lot of those accommodations
0: So we have a couple more areas or quick questions that we want to share ask of you before before we go. one of them on the topic of, embryos, additional embryos. We sometimes have folks in our space who are wildly successful and have a plethora of embryos and they're only planning on maybe one or two children. And so I'm, I'm wondering like how people typically handle extra embryos and whether or not the, um, the clinics themselves can facilitate an embryo donation situation.
2: Absolutely. If you are having extra embryos and you want to know what your options are, my biggest thing is ask your doctor, or your clinic, because there are a lot of things we can do that patients don't always know about, because when you're going through this process, you're throwing so much information, so mm-hmm. much information. So we're not also going to throw all this other stuff at you. <laughs> um, so some By the way, even before you get pregnant, here's all these other things. <laughs> exactly. It's just too overwhelming. So mm-hmm. if you're concerned about the things, always talk to your doctor, but Most clinics have some sort of anonymous donation program. Um, A lot of clinics don't have a traditional adoption program where you're knowing who you're giving embryos to or they're matching you with the recipient because they don't have that infrastructure. We don't have the the capacity to do something like that. But a lot of clinics do have an anonymous donation process where you are now signing over your rights to those embryos and we can offer them to other to other patients. It's all anonymous. Um, the recipients don't know you who you are. You don't know who the recipient is. Um, if you're wanting a more known or open adoption sort of situation, there are some organizations out there. Some are religious based. You kind of have to do your research on if those are right for you. Um, but there's also other ways to meet someone who's looking for embryos. If you have extra embryos, There's lots of Facebook groups now. You got to make sure you're doing your screening here, and you're yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, you you have to weed out the crazy sometimes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's good to know that, like, you know, if they are interested in just anonymous donation, they can they can ask their clinic about that. One one last thing, and I know that like it's it's interesting because we've seen all of these in the media. People will like make people paranoid about like, did you get the baby you should get? Right. And we've seen all these like lifetime movies that switched at birth and stuff like that. And so I'm wondering about like, how does the lab and the clinic go about confirming that you're actually getting the correct sperm or also like the correct embryo?
2: Yeah. That's really funny that you bring that up because I actually just had some, a whole bunch of my followers on TikTok tag me in a video where this girl was going through IUI and someone freaked out in the comments And so then she was all paranoid that this wasn't her sperm. So I, she was very sweet. She was literally in tears. I felt so bad. She was so stressed out about it. And so, so, so unlikely to happen. If it did, you would hear about it. The reason that it, it comes up is because it is so rare. So when something like that happens, it's all over everything because it doesn't happen. Um, So there are some things that we do to make sure that the sperm sample you're bringing in is the sperm sample that you're then inseminated with an hour later. Mm -hmm. When a patient comes to drop off their sample, we're checking their ID, we're checking all of their consents. uh, We make sure they know what they're there for. And then once it gets into the lab, everything that sperm touches, whether it's tubes, um, if it's going from cup to cup or centrifuge to incubator, has a label on it. So it has your name, your partner's name, and both of your date of births, as well as your medical record numbers. All of that sort of thing is on everything that we touch. Um, it's going from tube to centrifuge. We're taking the label off to move it to every tube. Um, so the- you are using
0: donation sperm, right, from like an anonymous bank. Does it, I mean, it comes with like a, a number. Do you just keep that number on there throughout the process in the same way that you would keep like a partner sperm information? So we
2: actually would put your name on it.
0: Okay, so it so would just be one
2: name. Yeah, so when we get sperm in from California, Kyle, Fairfax, Zytec, any of those donor, donor banks, there's paperwork that comes with your name on it and the donor that you have chosen. We double check that the donor that's on the page is the same donor that's in the tank. And then when we pull it out to thaw, we do the same thing. We check again. And then since that's your sperm, we're putting your name on it, not necessarily the donor number. But we pull the label off the vial. And stick the vial on the paperwork. And so, when you go in for your insemination, you check your name on the vial uh, that they're about to inseminate you, with you, you. With, and then they can also check the sticker with the donor number to make sure that that donor is is the donor you're expecting. Um, yeah. Because if we take the label off, we want to make sure patients still see it. So, all of those things are things that we are taking into consideration. Um, and we also only process one sample at a time. You're never going to have an andrologist processing two samples at once that's how things happen. Um you're doing one at a time. There's not even another sample in the lab or in your space. It may there may be another sample in the lab, but it's across the across the way in a different incubator. You're not working on more than one sample at a time. That's great to know.
1: Yes.
0: All
2: right. Well thank
0: you so much, Elise. This has been amazing.
1: Yes, thank <laughs> you. I feel like we've gone from like 0. 0.0 to 60 and now we're ready to birth this baby. So no. y'all <laughs>
2: Oh, get your baby.
1: And thank you, Elise.
2: <laughs> yeah. And make sure you look up Elise, the embryologist for, for those young people out there, consider this career path, Dad, please, Yes, please. You can talk to me give me a call. I will have one talk to you about her career.
0: All right. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Bye now.
1: Well, pod, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, share us with your girlfriends. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tell us what you thought of this episode on social media. On Facebook, we are at Mocha SMC Podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Mocha SMC. You can find additional information on the topics from the podcast at our website at mochasmc.com. Till next time, pod. Bye now.